0: check it out cam and e1 keep doing y'all thing snoop dog love y'all and i'm
1: listening every day recorded live from hong kong and toronto this is the pr and law podcast the pr and law podcast turn it up turn it up with your hosts cam McMurchy, and you and christie
2: Welcome to episode number 21 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Cam McMurchie, along with you and Christy. Only...
0: Snoop Dogg is allowed to call me Ewan Cam. How are you?
2: <laughs> Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and his firm's online at DuntroonLLP.Law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter. And you can sign up for that at DigitalBitsPR.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. And you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Account name PR Law Podcast. All one word PR Law Podcast podcast and you can also subscribe to our youtube channel or soundcloud not to miss an episode lastly please uh if you've got questions for us uh let us know you can post them on social media with the hashtag prlawpod and we'll answer them in a future show ewan with that introduction introduction from snoop how are you i'm good i finally finally got my haircut cameron
0: first time i i sort of ducked into my, um, my hairdresser just before everything shut down. But of course that was several months ago. And, uh, you know, as you know, I've kind of got big curly red hair. Yeah. Very girls. Mm-hmm. It's it's not the sort of, it's not the sort of hair that I can just kind of wander into any, um, any Joe blow barbershop to, to deal with. Um, you know, you sort of need somebody who, who knows how to deal with curly hair. So, She'd been backed up. She was completely backed up when she reopened. So I only just got in yesterday and it, it's, it's wonderful. Well, it just feels great. I of all that hair.
2: I need to do the same. I have not shaved in two and a half months and I have a beard that is uh, completely unruly. I mean, I look like a totally different person. Uh, and I got to say, it's still like 30 degrees here and humid and the beard is not nice outside <laughs> in that weather. But uh, I just received word tonight that we're going back into the office. Everybody again, no more split teams, no more working from home starting tomorrow morning. Um, I'm not shaving tonight because of this podcast, but And I won't have time to shave tomorrow morning either, because it's going to I think this is going to take a while. Uh, So I'll have to save it, save it for Tuesday. But, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to enjoy it when I'm cleaned up as well.
0: Well, I've seen the photos and uh, (laughs) it it is a formidable, formidable beard. Maybe, you know, maybe you should share a shot with uh, with our listeners. But um, I can't attest to the fact that that's not going to be a quick five minute trim. That's that's going to take you some time
2: and a few different tools, I think, as well. Um, Yeah, you
0: might need some garden shears. (laughs)
2: Um, This has been just an insane news week. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that happened this week. And even from a PR perspective, there's just so much to talk about. Um, So we want to try and and keep it focused and and keep it moving. I mean, obviously, the biggest news was the the shooting of uh, Jacob Blake. Uh, about a week ago now, uh, and the video of course that, that surfaced of that, um, he was shot seven times in the back as he was reaching into his car and, uh, his three sons were in the car and watched Him get shot, Uh, and there's some. uh, I see there's some debate over whether he was reaching for a knife or had a knife in the in the vehicle, or there was no knife at all. Uh, It looks like there's some sort of conflicting narratives uh, about that. But needless to say, I mean, this has kicked off a lot more protests again in the U.S. And you know, I've seen some footage even just before we started recording you. And I mean, some some American inner cities. I'm thinking Portland in particular. I mean, they look like almost war zones. And I know there's some talk that like you know the the right wants to restart a civil war. It doesn't look like we're that far away from that? Yeah,
0: it it's been some pretty crazy footage. Just you know, some of those images of you know people wandering the streets with with um, with guns. Of course, you know we talk about some of the, um, militia speak that I've heard of, which, you know, I've, I've seen criticism of on both sides of the political spectrum. You know, a lot of people on the, on sort of the left are suggesting that they're not militias, they're just gangs. And it's mm-hmm. just a nice, a nice term that's been coined for, for organized gangs that are no different than any other organized gang. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty dire commentary on both sides.
2: Yeah, it really is, um, and of course, I mean, one um, impact or or fallout from this was was uh, the Milwaukee Bucks decided to just before they were about to play, uh, and the NBA teams that remain in the playoffs are down in a bubble in Florida, uh, and they refused to play on Wednesday in protest, which is a, a very powerful message, um, and I think I think the NBA players have really realized the stage that they've got, the platform that they've got, and how much of an influence um, they can have on these things. And so I think they're definitely to be commended um, for that. But conversely, the NHL is also in the playoffs and they are also in bubble cities, but two of them, Toronto and Edmonton uh, in Canada. And that didn't go so well. Uh, now, obviously, there's a big difference between these two leagues. I mean, there are not very many African-Americans at all uh, in hockey. It's, it's a it's a white sport. It's predominantly um, a white sport. And, you know, when the walkout happened on Wednesday, the NHL went ahead with two games. Now, one of them was in the afternoon. Uh, where there wasn't much time really to 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 call that one. Uh, but the evening game went ahead and, and the league was really blasted for that uh, because it seemed like nobody cared. The game should not have been played. Nobody was interested. Nobody cared who, who, who won. None of that. Uh, it's a really bad look on the league, I think. Um, but the next day they did decide uh, to take a stand, which, which, which was, you know, was a day late. Um, but it was still a, a, a powerful message. And I want to just play a quick clip here from Tom Manek. I've played him on the show before. Uh, he's a sports business expert, uh, from TSN in Canada. And he has a comment of sort of where, where, where the NHL goes from here, especially considering, uh, its differences from the NBA.
1: Until
0: the players are better educated especially players of privilege and players as as white as most of the players in the National Hockey League are, you know, they're not going to feel as personally connected to it as African-Americans are who've had direct experiences. And so I just think what they did was courageous. What they did was good. It was a day late, but I still think it'll set the stage for
2: um, uh, the NHL to be, let's say, more comprehensive in this area. There's one thing I want to say here from a PR angle, Ewan, which was once the NBA players walked out, the NHL league said, we're not going to do anything. It's up to the players. Up to them if they want to take some sort of action. And I felt like that was really passing the buck in a very negative way. It was not showing leadership in any way, shape or form. The leagues are very different. um, But, you know, it's interesting when there's any other issue that's happening, the league likes to step in and take the lead. But something like this, they just fell behind uh, and it was not a good look.
0: Yeah, you know I I feel like we we beat up on the NHL a lot on this show um but but again I mean this is just sort of another one of those examples of you know the ongoing branding issue of the NHL and they just completely continue for whatever reason To to mess up situations that they really could come out on the right side of. And again, to your point, better late than never. Right. So they came out eventually and did it. But again, this is just this is just yet another example that sort of demonstrates that the nhl is sort of out of touch with the
2: the cultural zeitgeist at the moment um and they really really need to do better yeah and i think the comparison is fascinating to me because i mean basketball you need a ball and a hoop really like it's very available for people to play i mean but as you're aware hockey is a it's a it's a it's a almost a wealthy sport now or a sport for wealthy people. It's incredibly expensive Absolutely. to play. Um, so it's naturally going to have sort of a class issue, I think. And then obviously with the league being predominantly white um, it's different. I think, I mean, you can't in, in some level, you can't expect the white, the white players to come out and say that this is an issue that has affected them directly. Cause it has not probably for the most part, but they also have a powerful platform to come out and say, even though, This is something we could put our head in the sand about. We're not going to because we do have we do have, uh, you know, African-American players in the league, people in in their families, you know, friends, cities they play in and that it's important regardless. Um, So it was nice to see them to uh, at least do something.
0: Well, and also, again, it it sort of presupposes that one needs to be black to to take issue with systemic discrimination and racism, be it. You know, from the police, in the workforce, in the education system, what have you? And of course, it it doesn't. And really, when you the only way you're going to see any significant form of progressive substantive change around these issues is when all parties are at the table and all parties are involved in addressing the problem.
2: Um, the other big item uh, that happened this week was the Republican National Convention. You and we talked last week about Barack Obama's speech at the Democratic Convention. Which uh, we both we both praised. I didn't catch much of the RNC. I did see the photos of the White House and the Trump Pence uh, big monitors there, which was like, honestly, that was a little difficult to stomach just because normally the government and the parties are quite kept quite separate. It's the first time that's ever been done. First time that a secretary of state has ever spoken at a convention, um, as well. Um, so there is a, an intentional mixing of sort of us power with, with president Trump, uh, himself. Um, and it was also different in the sense that there was part of it that had a live audience and part of it did not. Some of it was taped just like at the uh, democratic convention. And, and one speech, uh, in particular was from Kimberly Guilfoyle. Um, I think you probably are familiar with her, Ewan. uh, I think she was a Fox News um, pundit for a while. She's the former wife of uh, the California governor, Gavin Newsom. And she's now the girlfriend of Donald Trump Jr. Uh, So she's really kind of swapped parties there, going from (laughs) a California Democrat uh, to a Trump Republican. Uh, But she was one of the speakers last week. um, And I'm just going to play a quick clip of what she had to say.
1: President Trump is the leader who will rebuild the promise of America and ensure that every citizen can realize their American dream. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come.
2: Did you catch that?
0: Yeah, I, had to turn, I had to turn my head down, my headphones down there. That was just really, really loud. It's very
2: loud. We talked specifically about this subject last week about the difference between speaking to a camera in an empty room and speaking to a crowd. I think this is such a good example of how that was mixed up like i I know that uh, people are poking fun at how loud she got um there and absolutely it sounded not good at all and it's because it was meant for a crowd you can deliver a speech like that if you've got a roaring crowd in front of you but if you don't it comes off very awkward and very strange um and i think that's how this speech came off so there's a lesson in here if you're speaking to camera no need to yell (laughs)
1: Well, and
0: that's a, that's a great point. And yeah, it is. It's something we specifically talked about last week, right. And the idea of, you know, playing to a camera in an intimate way where you have the luxury of being quiet and small to convey a message, which can often be far more compelling than the sort of, you know, yelling and screaming in front of a a loud audience. My, my question here, Cam, and you know, maybe you have some insight on this is, this wasn't uncommon. You know, there were a few speakers that were, you know, maybe not quite of that volume, but that sort of big bombastic speaking style. And I have to assume that that was consistent with the direction or the the production, that it was a, a very, very deliberate tact. And I I was just curious if you had any sort of thoughts on that from a PR perspective that, you know, do you think that was specific, that it was deliberate in terms of the the direction and how... The producers wanted the speakers to come across.
2: Yeah, I think I think in general you want your speaker to have energy and to be filled sort of with excitement. I mean, you you, I mean, this is a re-election campaign, right? So he he's a, an incumbent president, and so um, you do need to sort of rally people again to elect him a second time. And so there does need to be quite a bit of energy behind that. But I, but I will say, I know that a lot of the president's speeches are written by Stephen Miller, who works inside the White House. Um, I've always had an issue with his speeches. I found them to be quite amateurish. Um, that sounds probably a bit harsh for me to say, but oftentimes there's really sort of cliched turns term, of phrases and things like that in the speeches. And I, I get where he's Coming from, but it just seems a bit lazy to me, and I don't know if this was um, a similar sort of situation where, like, when you when you're when you're writing a speech, you're picturing it being delivered in your head, and as you write line by line, you're thinking, do I pause here? You now, do I leave time for applause here? Do I, you know, do we ramp up this part? Um, and if you're if you're picturing a crowd, then then this is sort of how it comes off, even when when someone reads it. But I think this was just a a, a big mistake. I think she could have read the words. I think she could have injected energy into them as well, without screaming, just because the room was empty. Um, And I would say this if it were male or or female. Um, it's, It's it's not a good look. I think if there's nobody there.
0: Well, and I think look, and and that's another that's another issue that you just sort of raised at the end, right? And then this idea that you know, maybe there is a gender issue at play here where, you know, men are sort of, are are often in this sphere expected to be big and bombastic and that there's a double standard that women are, you know, are expected to be more reserved and demure. I hate that word. Mm -hmm. And I know women generally speaking, hate that word Mm -hmm. as well, but um, that, you know, there's a double standard here. And would we be, making the same comments with regard to the volume and sort of just that bombastic nature of the of of the speech and the cadence if if this had been a man
2: well you know what before i put this clip into the show i actually gave some thought about that i thought am i am i putting this in because she's female because you know we're not maybe as used to a female speaker um speaking at that pitch or is there some sort of um you know bias that I have against this. I did actually give it some thought because it occurred to me. Um, And then I thought, no, it it really is if it's male, male or female, Um, because I don't think you saw um, the male candidates uh, shouting to the same degree. And I have watched several of them. Um, so it was something that I took into consideration. And I, and I do think if, if if you had Obama uh, sort of speaking at the same tone during his speech, I, I would have said the same thing. I think the one thing we did note last week was you know, in front of a crowd and in a quiet room with a camera are just two totally different ways to speak. And there's different things that you should do to be effective when you're delivering speeches in those two different environments. And I really thought Guilfoyle was a perfect example of sort of that mismatch. This
0: is one of the one of those issues where I wish we uh, and, you know, let's let's invite the listeners to sort of chime in some of our, our, um, some of the some of the women that listen to sh- to the show to get their take on that, if they could send some some questions or some comments around this, I'd be very curious to get that perspective. Um, because I do think that that double standard exists, you Absolutely. Know, whether whether yeah. or not it was at play here, um, I guess is is up for debate. But I did find it sort of interesting that so much of the commentary on Twitter focused on this particular speech and and the style. And again, I, it just occurred to me that at the time, would we really be speaking this way? And would there be this much sort of snickering? Um, which there was, there was a lot of snickering around this. If, if we were talking about a man and not a woman,
1: continue the debate with us on social media, join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR law podcast, all one word, P R L A W podcast. Send us your questions now by email to ask us at PR That's all one word. Ask us, us at prlawpodcast.com or on social media with the hashtag prlawpod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D.
0: So Cam, I wanted to talk about, uh, this is kind of interesting. This is, it was an amendment to the Virginia Human Rights Act and they amended the act to address issues of, um, you know, discrimination around hairstyles. And this is something we're starting to see uh, more and more of. And we're talking about a specific, you know, specific protections, including prohibiting discrimination based on hairstyles um, on the basis of race related to race. This is the idea where we typically have seen sort of legislation like this. Um, What's an example again? Yeah. Well, you know. Let me let me let me address it this way. So Virginia isn't the first state to do this. They're actually the fourth state now to ban hairstyle discrimination. Uh, California, New York and New Jersey passed similar legislation prohibiting uh, discrimination in both the workplace and schools on the basis of hairstyle. And, you know, this, this is probably a good way to sort of address it. This was, um, when the law was passed in California, this is what the Democratic Senator Holly Mitchell of Los Angeles had to say, quote, we're changing the course of history, hopefully across this country by acknowledging that what has been defined as professional hairstyles and attire in the workplace has historically been based on a Eurocentric model based on straight hair. So again, so the basic premise here, Cam, is just that you can no longer discriminate on the basis of hairstyle. So if you are working in a, a legal office, for example, or a business environment, and someone happens to come in with, you know, long, big, curly hair, uh, you cannot discriminate against that individual on the basis of their specific hairstyle. And again, so the Virginia law where it says, you know, because or on the basis of traits historically associated with race, including hair texture, hair type, and protective hairstyles such as braids, locks, and twists. So that's what we're talking about.
2: So... Um- I had not seen this. So my question is, how do we draw the line between sort of racial discrimination and hairstyle discrimination? Because they almost seem like the same thing.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a really good, it's a really good question. And again, this is another fantastic example of adverse discrimination, right? I mean, the discrimination that isn't so readily apparent, Uh, and how are you going to know, right? How are you going to make that argument? And often this is an issue. I mean, predominantly we're talking about black women because this is, this is the group that historically has suffered the most discrimination around this issue. Um, Black women coming in, for example, for a job interview and, you know, they may have a hairstyle that again is not based on a Eurocentric model of what looks quote unquote professional and they lose out on job opportunities that go to others based on that discriminatory conduct. But how do you know that? How do you address it? And that's where this becomes a really, really difficult issue. So I think that, you know, the fact that there's now a number of States and apparently, you know, there's 20 other States in the U S that have proposed um, or have pending legislation specifically, Citing hairstyle as a, as a prohibited ground of, of discrimination. So clearly this is, this is a, a serious issue in the United States. And it's an issue here in Canada as well. Um, how best to address it? I, I mean, I think it's going to be very interesting to see um, the sorts of complaints that come forward around some of these amendments to the Human Rights Acts. Um, and how they play out in the courts.
2: Yeah, I, I guess, um, I mean, we, we talk about it's very difficult to determine if if it's the hairstyle. But like in your example, I mean, if if a, if a black female came into a, a job interview and was discriminated against, I would just lump all of that into racism because it's one in the same, like it's still not hiring her because of her her race, basically, because her hair is just a manifestation of her race. Which is what we're trying to fix here. So I guess that's the part that seems or I'm or I'm missing something. Are there cases where, you know, people um, where, where the hair in particular has become a big problem where everything else has been all right? Because otherwise it just seems like basic racism to me.
0: Yeah. And ultimately, I think I think you're right. And again, if you can create or demonstrate that there's a relationship between the discriminatory conduct on the basis of the hairstyle and race or ethnic origin, then, yeah, I mean, you're you're clearly speaking about discriminatory conduct. Um, I'm trying to think of a situation where you could sort of distinguish The two. And I suspect that there are a number of employers because these cases exist um, where employers have in their own minds, at the very least, drawn a distinction. And, you know, there was an interesting case last year here in the province of Ontario. Um, uh, Natasha Doyle Merrick was her name. She's or is her name. Rather, she she was working at the Art Gallery of Ontario at a bistro there for about five months. And she was told by one of her managers not to leave her, her curly Afro textured hair down, um, despite other non-black servers and hosts being allowed to do it. And, you know, one day she asked her manager, you know, why can't I leave my hair down? And her manager responded, well, why? So you can scare the clients away. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and as Doyle Merrick commented, this is not, you know, this is not unique or nor, nor this is an unheard of circumstance. And, you know, she recounted a story where a different manager uh, had told her that a client had complained about another bartender um, at the bistro who had, you know, quote unquote, big hair and thought it was unprofessional. So, yeah. So, I mean, this, this is absolutely an issue. And how do you draw that distinction between a manager or an owner who is effectively saying, well, look, your hair doesn't look professional with your hair is, is, you know, an intrinsic trait of your particular race or, or ethnic identity such that, To prohibit that particular style would be discriminatory conduct. And again, I think there's obviously an inherent relationship between the two. It's just that a number of states now are taking that additional step of saying, well, no, we're now going to make it even more explicit. We're going to say that, you know, we don't have to try and draw some elaborate correlation between race, ethnicity and hairstyle that, you know, if you happen to be a black woman with Afro textured hair and someone, you know, is is giving you a hard time suggesting that your hair lacks a certain professionalism, then that's discriminatory conduct under under these these amendments to, to human rights legislation.
2: And there have been several cases along these lines, and it looks like a lot of them really are specific to hair in terms of um, even the person has already been hired, for instance, and they're they're working and a, and a boss or a supervisor advises them to cut their hair or, or style it differently and they do not do so and then lose their jobs. Um, I see there's been a lot of those kinds of cases um, to deal with and also that this issue actually dates back a very long time that uh, in the United States sort of regular Regulations around hair go back to the 1700s uh, in Louisiana, so it's not it's not a it's not a new thing, um, and it's definitely interesting. So I guess you and your advice for employers then, if you are representing them, is to be careful about this.
0: Well, yeah, I think you know employers, you know, particularly and specifically, um, you know, in Virginia right now, I mean, they're going to have to update dress codes, they're going to have to update policies around appearance um, and other policies that might vo- violate. The law, um, making sure that managers are are trained to sort of avoid stereotyping and discrimination in this regard, um, and you know, I know in the in, in the Natasha Doyle Merrick case, she was involved in working with the AGO in developing policy to ensure stuff like this doesn't happen again. Um, And I think that's sort of the easiest way to address it. Employers can kind of address it through anti-discrimination, anti-harassment policies internally. You know, you don't have to wait for human rights legislation or the common law through case law to sort of catch up around these issues mm-hmm. if you as an employer address this as a concern then you can develop policy um, to ensure that your employees are protected in this regard
2: yeah and this is going to be important I can see this really taking root I can see yeah several states have already enacted uh, laws around this uh, so that's that's good to see um, Any anything else on this you want to add in
0: well, just notably that this isn't just for the workplace. This also addresses issues in the education system and schools. Um, now, I'm not certain that, you know, th- this would apply um, in the specific Virginia case. I can't see why it wouldn't if you're amending a human rights, the Human Rights Act, um, then presumably that would apply in all environments, in schools, in the workplace as well. But that's something to keep in mind too, that this is, this is certainly a prominent issue in the education system in the United States and here in Canada too.
1: Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRandLawPodcast.com. That's PRandLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out.
2: So in light of the protests happening in the United States and yet another uh, black person uh, shot by law enforcement and killed. Um, Obviously, I mean, this is still a huge issue, not one that's sort of uh, still sort of um, circulating in the background, but still very much front and center, top of mind, the number one item that companies and people are dealing with, in many cases, even above COVID-19. I mean, this has obviously been just a, a chaotic year, and uh, we're just past the the midway. Um, So I want to talk about what companies can do, what they should do in these situations. Um, There was an excellent article in uh, Business Insider this week where uh, Latoya Evans basically gave some advice. Uh, She's a communications and PR expert who has worked with a a number of companies like IBM, Bank of America, uh, those kinds of firms. And she has her own PR agency now. And she gave some of her thoughts. Um, on, on how companies should handle this sort of thing. So I just want to go through a couple because I thought they were um, quite, quite good. And I think the first one is one that I also tend to drill home, which is you cannot wait too long uh, before saying something. And, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of companies, and over the years where when a social issue like this comes up. A lot of managers, a lot of owners will say, this doesn't really relate to us, this isn't we don't want to put our, our nose in here like this is not about us at all, nobody's criticizing us, nobody's protesting us like let's just stay out of it. That is absolutely the wrong thing to do uh, especially in such a polarized environment like this one. So Latoya says, I think there's a danger in staying silent for racially charged events simply because at the very minimum, employees want to know that they are supported and that they are safe in their work environment. And I think that's big because whether you issue something externally or internally or both, which I think is is the best way to do it, I think this is also a good way to signal to your staff that you are aware of what's happening um, and you get it. Um, and by putting out sort of a public statement, it's also sort of a secondary benefit is that the staff also hear that.
0: Yeah. And I think the key here, Cam, is you have to do both, right? So what's what's unfortunate is there's been a lot of companies. And again, I'm not talking about the great big sort of multinational corporations. I'm predominantly speaking about smaller and mid-sized businesses who sort of want to hop on this bandwagon for you know the the, the PR benefits in doing so. And they're issuing public statements or tweeting or, you know, generating ads saying, you know, we support this and we support that and we're acting in solidarity with with this group and with that group. And that's all well and good. But the reality is, is that if you don't have internal policies in your company that reflect those messages, then they're just hollow. Right. And don't think for a second that employees aren't keenly aware of this stuff. Um, you know, and I've, I've certainly had a I had a discussion with a, a client a couple of weeks ago around precisely this issue. This was an individual who felt that the the corporate culture internally at the company was far and away from the messages that they were circulating externally in terms of black lives matter and solidarity with visible minorities and equity in the workplace among persons of color. Um, and her, her opinion was that internally there was nothing to suggest that this was a concern of the company in terms of their hiring practices, in terms of their policies and procedures manual, and that really it was just empty, hollow action in terms of trying to attract some business.
2: You are absolutely right. You and you've jumped ahead, actually. That is a point in here. Uh, so I'm going to touch on that. Sorry, yeah, sorry. no, that's good. That's good. I'll, I'll touch on that in a bit. Um, I think the, the second big point that she mentioned, even though we said, you know, um, don't wait too long, um, you do have to consider timing to some degree, um, because obviously, um, especially in issues like this that are so charged um, and that there are uh, People on both sides who are deeply entrenched on those two sides and who are likely to see everything through their own lens, you don't want to jump into it too quickly before you really do understand what happened. But there's a difference there. You don't want to wait for every fact to come out either. Um, And this is probably where a PR person helps because this is a judgment issue. This is very difficult to say to a company, you know, speak within one day or don't speak within the first 24 hours or wait 48 hours because it's different. It's different each time. It really depends what the event is, what how much coverage it's getting. Does it affect your staff or not directly? You know, things like that. Um, So you do want to, 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 to make sure that you at least have sort of the the real basics down. And Latoya says here, this is her quote, even in the current situation where people are trying to understand, process, decipher what information is out about the Jacob Blake case and the situation and the protests and all of the different things it spawned since then, it's still good enough for companies to note: hey, we have your back supportive of you and we understand this is a trying time because employees ultimately want to hear that they're heard they're valued and that their lives matter uh, and i think that was quite 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 well said
0: yeah you know you're right i mean You've got to you've got to say something. And obviously, if you want as a company to sort of address this through policy and procedure manuals, that stuff takes time. Right. So you may not necessarily want to wait the weeks and months that it's going to take to develop that internal policy before you speak out. Um, as a company, and I think you're right. You got to get out ahead of it. You've got to make some sort of statement that demonstrates that you're there for your employees, that you're conscious of these issues, and that you're prepared to to protect them and and assist in in any regard around these issues. Um, that that's sort of best practice. And I wish that there were more companies that were doing that, you know, and as, as opposed to just sitting back and saying nothing.
2: The third one, which I actually kind of think is the biggest one to me, this is the one thing that I would focus on the most, which is really acknowledging the emotions and showing empathy and sort of an understanding of what has happened in the lives of the people that work for you as a result. Of the crisis, or of the news, or whatever event happened, um, and and Evans says herself that it's important for a real acknowledgement of the range of emotions employees might be feeling. Um, in this case, especially um, black em- employees. Um, and 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 I have to say, you and like it's it's. I think as a company, it's not. I don't advise sort of coming out with fiery language on on one side or the other. I mean. Basically, you want to come out and acknowledge that this is a difficult time, like a lot of people are struggling here and and sort of take it from that perspective and work through the issues. And so there is one company in Wisconsin that did write this to their staff. So here's an example of what one company has written, quote, these are challenging times for our community and our country. And I want to take this moment to reiterate to our black and brown employees that we are with you and we support you again. That's very simple. That's a very simple sentence, but it doesn't need to be complex. It doesn't need to be convoluted or flowery. It's a direct statement. Um, and those kinds of things um, usually, usually help people understand that the company, they get it. It's really important that your employees think you get it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and as we've talked about many, many times before, and to your point, striking that balance can often be very, very difficult. And sometimes mm-hmm. employers lean way too heavy in one direction and they say way too much um, and things can very quickly backfire and get out of hand. So getting the tone of that message correct, obviously, is going to be key.
2: Yeah. And the fourth one, I mean, we could go through a huge list of, of advice, but th- these are the four big ones. And this is what you just mentioned, which is outline or mention some action to be taken. And I actually feel like this is something relatively new in the last year, last two years, maybe that statements of support were enough before, um, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder, you know, those sorts of statements that is just not enough anymore. And I think we saw this with the NBA players as well. You know, just 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 making a statement is enough. There has to be some action. There has to be some follow up. There has to be some way to show that you're living out the values that you're espousing, um, that you're taking actions on the things that you say you care about. Uh, and those really are critical. And, and you know, you mentioned you and it might take a long time. Maybe they don't have, um, you know, a, a staff function set up for this um, or maybe no group to deal with these sorts of things. Yes. or Or, or policy. That's OK, as you mentioned. But say so. Say, we, you know, we don't have this today, but we're, we're going to build it. You know, this is this is a priority for us. And we're convening these people, you know, to take a look at the best way we can we can do this. And I think just being open and transparent, even if you're not finished, even if you don't know what it's going to look like at the end, just be transparent that you, you care and you started the process, because I think that can be very powerful uh, for your for your employees to hear.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's something I saw earlier this week around precisely this issue, which was um, somewhat encouraging. There are a series of leading law firms here in Canada um, that have signed a black, it's called the Black North Initiative Law Firm Pledge. And this, I mean, it's the series of law firms that are attached to this are effectively the biggest, most prestigious law firms in Canada, and they've signed on to this pledge. And we're talking about some actual substantive action here, whereby they're committing by, and I, I mean, I'd, I'd have to pull up, we can, we can provide a link to the, to the information in terms of what the, the specific nature of the pledge is, but effectively it is to commit to a certain number of black lawyers that is reflective of their representation within the general population and ensure that that number is reflected in law firms themselves. And I think that that's a really, really great example of firms stepping up and saying, hey, we're not just going to pay lip service to this. We are committing to specific hiring goals um, by a particular date to ensure that you know representation issues are addressed.
2: Yep, and we would always tell clients too, you know, what 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 whatever you're going to do has to be tangible and measurable. There has to be a way to look at it and say, okay, you've come this far or you fell this far short or these are the things you need to do to to get up to the level you you want to be at. Because if you're not specific, if it's not measurable, it's so easy for it to just fall off the radar or for you to claim that you did do something or that things are better um, without any evidence of that actually happening. Um, and so, so the, the, the tangible, the measurable is, is, is key. I, I do want to mention, too, the last thing here just with, with, with Latoya Evans. This is her quote, just sort of on that last part about being really clear about actions. Um, She says, quote, it is completely acceptable to say that you don't have all the answers and that you don't have the solid plans, but that you're working to listen to employees and are working to figure out what the plan is. It's also completely fine to bring in outside advisors for this as well, who are specialists in this area of diversity and inclusion to develop a plan. And I think that's also a good point. I think bringing somebody in also gives it that um, veneer of a little more credibility of, of the company um, not thinking that it has all the answers um, and I think that's, that can also be quite, quite, quite valuable as well
0: Absolutely. Um, and just while you're saying that, Cam, I managed to, to find the, the actual pledge. Um, and this is, again, so this is the Canadian Council of Business Leaders Against Anti-Black Systemic Racism. Um, so the pledge acknowledges the existence of anti-Black systemic racism and its impact on Canada's Black citizens, which are 3.5% of the population, and the need to create opportunities within our companies for Black people, And this is one of the paragraphs of the initiatives. It says, we will use our resources to work with members of the black community in alignment with the black North initiative, working with the black North initiative. We'll ensure that black communities across Canada are aware of opportunities of employment within our organization. And we commit to specific hiring goals of at least 5% within our student workforce from the black community as appropriate, having regard to the size of the respective firm and that working with the Black North Initiative, we will invest directly or indirectly at least 3% of firm-supported corporate donations and sponsorships to promote investment and create economic opportunities in the Black community, both by 2025.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful to do that, and um, I, I think that's a that's a that's a really good start.
0: Um, yeah, and yep. again, we're talking about top tier firms here, right, Cam? And and I think that that's part of what makes it significant. And this is you know sort of one thing that I know um, I've reflected on a, on a number of occasions within my particular profession, and that's that. You know, we have to the, the only way that this is going to change is if you do have some sort of substantive practice that's going to address the inherent discrimination in in the profession, in the workforce at large, in the population at large, in the education system. Um, so this is really a great, a great, great step. And I'm um You know, I'm 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 kind of proud of the legal community and sort of taking some actual substantive action. Now, is this you know, is this like the end game? No, hopefully not. Hopefully it's just the start of of turning a corner um, in in moving in the right direction.
2: You know, you and it was, um, you know, interesting, especially when the NBA players, the NHL players boycotted games. I mean, I I was quite shocked at the number of messages I received that were dismissive of those actions um, you know, even people who are close, close friends of mine who are liberal minded, uh, Canadians, um, you know, basically I, I saw comments going around on Twitter too, just saying, you know, after, after the players had decided to come back, it was just, you know, dismissively regarded as, oh, you know, did you solve racism in your couple of days off, you know, things like that. And, um. I just think that just misses the point so much. And I, I think uh, Chris Weber, uh, a former NBA star, uh, made a made a comment. I'll, I'll try and find the audio to include or to at least link to. But I thought his comments were, were really good and sort of struck the right tone. And he said, I'm very proud of the players. I don't know the next steps. Don't really care what the next steps are because the first steps are to garner attention and they have everybody's attention around the world right now. Then leadership and others will get together and decide the next steps. So we know it won't end tomorrow. We know that there's been a million marches and nothing will change tomorrow. And I I think that's exactly right. This is going to take time. His his quote actually goes on longer. I will include a a link to it because I think it's worth listening to. Uh, But he's saying this is generational. We have to keep pushing for this. Each generation has a role to play to push this along further.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I saw a lot of that commentary as well. I mean, particularly people complaining about their sports figures acting out in a political fashion, suggesting, you know, people turn to sports for escapism, not to have politics Ram down their throats, and first of all, I think that that first that that suggests that this is somehow new. Um, you know, I mean, I think we can look to the the NFL as a fantastic example of this. You look at the Super Bowl; you have jets flying overhead, you have very, very, very powerful symbols of patriotism of connections to the military recognition of military officials throughout games. You see this in major league baseball as well. So to suggest that there hasn't been an an inherent politicization of professional sports that has existed long before, um, you know, Colin Kaepernick took a knee, um, is kind of ridiculous to begin with. So, there has always been this inherent relationship between politics and sport, and politicians have very keenly utilized sport from a, from a PR angle to, to push a particular political agenda. This is nothing new. What's interesting now is that this is actually on the players' terms as opposed to the owners' terms. So I think what we're actually seeing is, is a taking back of some level of control from uh, you know, the athletes themselves, which is probably a good thing.
2: Yeah, you know, and I can hear, um, I can hear people probably thinking right now, you know, Cam and you are uh, you know libtards or something like that. Um, and I really want to stress, like I, you know me, you, and I'm I'm not sort of a reactionary liberal in any way. Um, and it's sort of unfortunate that if you sort of support these actions, that you're painted with that brush, um, because I I certainly don't think of myself that way. But we are in a situation where like I like I do not understand clearly what black people in America what their lives are like now, I have experienced racism. I live in Asia as a white person, and sometimes it's positive. Sometimes it's a, I benefit because of the color of my skin, and sometimes I don't. I mean, many times I've been, I've people have said awful things about me just because I'm, I'm a white guy here. I mean, it's fine. It's not even close to what black people in the U.S. are facing, but I mean, it's still annoying occasionally. So if we, you know, times that by a thousand and put it every day, I mean, that's, that's something difficult to, to deal with. With. So I'm not going to deny someone's uh, experience that way, and I think for the um, NBA players, and I said this off the top, I think they have realized that they have a lot more power than they thought they had, because even for you know people that I know, of course, many people in Canada, it's still kind of a, a U.S. issue. But the the NBA players refusing to play, and then the hockey players refusing to play a day later. Instantly, that's all that's discussed on all kinds of different radio programs and podcasts and TV news outlets. It it does bring a lot of attention to the issue that would not have been there if those actions were not taken. So in my view, they set out to draw attention to this and it was successful based on the coverage and the conversations that resulted.
0: I mean, absolutely. And again, sort of going back to my, my, my previous point about, you know, the, the NFL or major league baseball and the inherent politicization of these sports that has, has, has existed and existed long before Colin Kaepernick took a knee, you know, you can't have it both ways. So you can't, you can't say, well, those, you know, jets flying overhead and references to, to military service in a, in a baseball game or an NFL game, that's okay, but this isn't, you know, it, it, it has to, the way I see it, it sort of has to be an all or nothing thing. Either you say, well, we're going to allow some level of politicization of the sport and for athletes to comment on these issues as they see fit, or we're not, and you're not going to have it, you're not going to have it at all. Um, but I think we've turned a corner on that issue now, such that even if, you know, uh, some sort of broad um Edict was to be issued saying there will no longer be any politicization of any sport. I mean, you know, the genie's out of the bottle here. Mm -hmm. Um, Athletes have learned that they do have a powerful platform and that they can affect substantive change when they utilize that platform. And I don't think that this is just going to disappear overnight. I think that this is something that's going to be present going forward on any number of political issues that um, individual athletes or collective athletes may feel uh, a sense of. Of, of attachment to.
1: Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Check this out. Whoa! Hey, check this out!
2: No, no, wait, wait, oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this
1: out on the PR in Law podcast.
2: All right, Ewan, what have you got for this week?
0: Well, you know this isn't this isn't a particularly cheery subject, Cam, but um I think it's important, and I, so I, I wanted. to to address it on the show. And I'm sure you saw that, you know, Chadwick Boseman uh, just died at 40, yeah, 43 years old, Mm -hmm. you know, for, for those who, you know, might be unfamiliar. And I don't know how you could be unfamiliar um, with, with Chadwick Boseman, but he starred in Black Panther, uh, the Jackie Robinson bio 42 and the, the James Brown bio get on up. And, you know, the actor, he was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer in 2016. So, I mean, he would have only been 39 years old um, at the time, and it eventually progressed to stage four. And that's what I actually wanted to talk about, Cam, because in one of the the obits that I read on Bozeman, there was a lot of talk about Issues around colorectal cancer, and again, mm-hmm. I, I understand that this isn't necessarily something people want to hear about, but I I think it's important because I I had no idea that you know according to a, a study by the American Cancer Society, uh, colorectal cancers, which include colon cancer, are the third most common cancer diagnosed in men and women in the U.S. and the second most common cause of cancer death. Um, and what's really, really concerning here is that while rates of of the colorectal cancer is dropping among people who are sixty five and older, it's been rising in adults under the age of fifty. Um, and a, you know a two thousand and seventeen study published by the the Journal of the National Cancer Cancer Institute found that people younger than fifty five are fifty eight percent more likely to be diagnosed with late stage colorectal cancer than older people. And this is largely due to the delayed follow-up symptoms, which can, you know, be present for years without people recognizing it. So, you know, I raise this issue, Cam, because, you know, people need to go and get screened at a younger age, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was something that I hadn't necessarily thought of. So, I you know, I hope that That can maybe be a positive that that comes out of Chadwick Boseman's death that, you know, more people become conscious of this issue and go and get themselves screened.
2: Yeah, that is very well said and very good advice as well. You know, it's interesting, too, as I get older and I mean, I just went into my 40s um, like I have started thinking about these things. Like I'm now getting to the age where I probably should get checkups a little more regularly. I mean, I'm the kind of person who goes years without visiting a doctor. Um, and, uh, that's, I mean, not advisable at any time, but, but a little more understandable, I think when you're younger, but, um, yeah, some of this stuff, if you can detect it early, it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a real blessing.
0: Yeah. So to that point, just before we switch up, here's some, some early warning signs. Cause if people are thinking, okay, so, you know, i how do I know, how do I know if I'm, if I'm at risk? So early warning signs, um, which often appear in your thirties are things like stomach pain, gas, um, um, Unusual bowel bowel movements. So again, you know these these are precisely the sorts of things that people could misconstrue as just basic stomach yeah. issues, um, without addressing sort of root root concerns. Um, you know, and environmental, genetic, lifestyle factors. These are things like obesity, type two diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, a high diet in red or or processed meats, smoking. Um, and a family, a family history of these issues. So, you know, the good news here, Cam, is that colon cancer survival rates are about 90% when caught in the early stages. So again, all the more reason, go see your doctor, get yourself screened and, and make sure everything's okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, as I said, good, good advice. Um, I, I also want to touch on an issue that's also not positive. <laughs> I think Ugh, there's just so much negativity going on in the world. I was kind of hoping to put sort of positive escape sort of things in this last segment. But I think this week there's just some serious things going Sorry on. Sorry, to have ruined that for <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. I'm going I'm to I'm do the same thing. Um, uh, the Atlantic has just launched um, a series um, called I Moved On Her Very Heavily. Um, Which, if you'll recall, that was some language used by President Trump in the Access Hollywood tape um, before he was elected. Um, And I'm not sure if you remember you and E. Jean Carroll. Um, She was actually an advice columnist for Elle for a very long time, like multiple decades. So she was quite well known. Uh, But a couple of years ago, after Trump was elected, she published an article that talked about how Trump moved on her and raped her in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room, a changing room in New York City. And it's, it's a difficult read uh, about what she puts in there and sort of her life and her interactions with Trump. And um, I, I will find the link to the original article that she wrote, which was a couple of years ago, which I have not forgotten because I found it quite, quite powerful. Uh, but she's also the author of this new series. And they are interviewing people who say that President Trump Uh, moved in or moved on them. Um, And the first person up is uh, Natasha Stoyanov. um, And I believe she said she was uh, attacked at Mar-a-Lago, the president's Florida resort. So um, this is a a new sort of um, series being put out by The Atlantic. I still think it's worth reading. I know people are dealing with uh, you know, racism and things like that right now. But the Me Too movement is still still important uh, to 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 think about and to keep uh, keep top of mind, especially as we go into the election in a couple of months.
0: Absolutely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Cam. I'll I'll check that out for sure. Awesome. All right. Uh, well, anything, anything positive to to wrap up, Ewan?
0: Well, yeah, um, I, I, I don't know. It's uh, it's a sunny day. That's always nice. Yeah. Um, still warm weather. Well, here in Canada,
2: also nice. That's a good thing. Our COVID um, numbers are way down here. I think I mentioned off the top that we're we're going back into the office. I, I believe we're under twenty a day now, which is good. So there is one positive thing, at least for 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 people who live in Hong Kong. Well, there you go. So I guess that's something then. There's something. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us today. We, we, we covered a lot of ground uh, fairly quickly. Uh, so it was a it was a busy news week last week and, and also a, a busy show. So thank you for joining us. And don't miss a show either. Please subscribe in your podcast app of choice, or you can subscribe to us on our YouTube channel or SoundCloud. And you can also follow us on social media to get a heads up when anything's happening with the show. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the account name PR Law Pod. Podcast. It's all one word, PR Law Podcast. And lastly, don't forget questions, please, especially the uh, topics we touched on uh, today. Uh, questions and comments are most welcome. Just tag uh, your comment to us uh, on social media with the hashtag PR Law Pod. Uh, and we'll address that and read some comments uh, in a future show as well. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. We'll see you next week.
1: This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchy and Ewing Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word. P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.